Now, Wednesday nights, we have been uh, working our way through the book of Genesis. And uh, it's been a great study. And we've made it all the way through chapter 12. And I thought it would be helpful just to kind of review what happened quickly between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 12. Now, this study in Genesis is really, really important because if you don't get Genesis right, you won't get the rest of the Bible right. And you won't, you won't understand what life is all about. You won't understand the problem that we all face. You won't understand the solution. You won't understand the value of life. I mean, there's so many things that you, you won't properly understand or grasp if you don't understand Genesis. So it's important we go back to the beginning and see what God says as a foundation for our worldview. And so here's to kind of catch up to speed. I think it's there at the top of your notes. Uh, Genesis starts, of course, in chapters 1 and 2 with creation. And then chapter 3 we see there is a fall. Uh, God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, literal people in His own image. And He uh, gave them uh, a beautiful garden in which to live in fellowship with each other and in fellowship with Him. It was perfection. And in that paradise, God gave them one command There was one tree they were not supposed to eat fruit from. And Satan comes onto the scene in chapter 3. He tempts Eve. Eve eats that fruit. And then she hands it to Adam. And Adam, he didn't even have to be tempted. He just took it and ate it. He ate the fruit. And that's when everything went wrong. That's when sin entered the world. God uh, cursed the world because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And everyone that has been born since Adam and Eve has been born with a sin Nature, And that's our problem. That's everyone's problem. That's the world's problem. That's why we have fighting and fussing and world wars and, and all of that because of uh, the sin nature that has infected all of humanity. And it goes all the way back to sin entering the world with Adam and Eve. So that's called the fall in chapter 3. And, and we are experiencing the effects of the fall every day in our lives. Uh, but after the fall... Uh, God gives them some hope in chapter 15. He said there's going to come one. Uh, I'm sorry, not chapter 15. Verse 15 of chapter 3. He said there's going to come someone born of a woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that is the first prophetic reference to Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That passage is called the Proto-Evangelium. Uh, the first gospel is what that means. The first reference to the good news that Jesus will come and defeat the enemy. And, and all of that happens in that chapter. And then after that chapter we see uh, Adam and Eve start to have uh, more children and, and we see the effects of sin. Uh, Cain kills Abel, right? And they begin to have more children. Their children have children and there are problems because they're all born with a sin nature. And it gets so bad that God decides to flood the earth and destroy humanity. But because of His grace, because He had a plan of salvation and redemption, God decided to save Noah and his family and start over. So, starting in chapter 6, you see, uh, chapter 5, see the story of Noah, on into chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. At, uh, in chapter 9, we see that God says to Noah, they're going to destroy the earth through flooding again, gives him the rainbow as a promise, and then Noah starts over. But guess what? The problem of sin is still there because sin is inward. It starts in the heart. It's the nature of all who are uh, human. And so after the flood, we see mankind um, again 
spiraling downward and they are together, gathering together at a place called Babel and in their pride and arrogance they decide to build a mighty tower uh, to God is what they say and God sees that when humanity is together in their sin and they can cooperate in their sin there is no limit to the evil that they can that they can um, come up with together. And so God graciously, Babel is, is, a, is the grace of God, God graciously scatters them and gives them different languages so they can't, uh, they can't uh, get together and uh, plan and strategize evil things together and they're scattered over the face of the earth. And so we still see sin wrecking people's lives in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And then chapter 12 starts. And in chapter 12, God encounters a man named Abram, who we know is Abraham. And he says, Abram, I'm going to make a covenant with you, a promise with you. There at the very beginning of chapter 12, he says, Abram, I'm going to give you a son. He and his wife Sarah didn't have a son. He says, through your son, I'm going to build a mighty nation. And I'm going to give you land for your descendants to occupy. And I'm going to, through your descendants, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And so through your descendants will come a nation, through that nation, who we know as the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, through that nation I will bless or provide blessing for everybody on the face of the earth. Now, how did that happen? Well, God gave Abraham a son named Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Joseph. And we see the story unfolding through the book of Genesis. And we see God form the Jewish people. All through the Old Testament, God preserves the Jewish people. And one day, through the Jewish people, God sends a Messiah. His name is Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross. And the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. He died for all the peoples of the earth. So, because Jesus died on the cross, people from every tribe and every tongue can be saved if they place their faith in Jesus. So through Abraham's descendants, all the peoples on the face of the earth can be blessed with salvation if they just turn to Jesus. Everybody got that? So that's the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So if you haven't been here for the past you know, few months, I just caught you up to speed right there, okay? <laughs> now, uh, the remainder of the book of Genesis, chapter 12 is kind of a hinge. Uh, the remainder of the book of Genesis, chapters 13 through 50, deal with God fulfilling His promise to Abraham by giving him descendants so that he would grow into a mighty nation. So that's the that's the the rest of the story, if you will, of the book of Genesis. It's God fulfilling this promise. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to give you land. That story is told in the second part of the book of Genesis. Basically, Genesis 12 through 50 tells the story of how we got from Abram and Sarah to the nation of Israel. Okay, that's important. Chapters 12 through 50 tell us how we got from Abram and Sarah to a, to a mighty nation. And, by the way, how they got to Egypt, which is going to be key for Exodus and the story of deliverance from Pharaoh through Moses. By the way, I saw a movie trailer today, this Christmas there, uh, Ridley Scott, who I think um, has... Uh, what other movie did Ridley Scott do that's well-known? Uh, did he do Gladiator? One of those movies. But Ridley Scott is, is, is uh, uh, directing a movie about Moses and the exodus 
from uh, Egypt. So they just thought that was interesting. A new version of the Ten Commandments, if you will. Charlton Heston's not in it. Uh, so I don't know how that's going to be with Charlton Heston not in it. Because Charlton Heston is Moses. Uh, but that's coming out. I hope they get it biblically accurate. I'm not holding my breath. But I hope it's, I hope it's better than Noah, perhaps. So... From now until the remainder of this study of Genesis, we're going to look at the story of God taking Abram, giving him a son, and through that son and his descendants, building a great nation that we know as the nation of Israel. Now, if you look in there in your notes, Abraham's story, the story we're about to study, is a story of faith. A story of faith. If you want to learn about faith, walking in faith, Abraham is a great character to study in God's Word. You see, God spoke and He believed God. God spoke to him in Genesis chapter 12 and and He believed God and then He lived in light of God's Word. And that's what faith is. Faith is taking God at His Word and directing your life accordingly. Now, put a star by that definition in your notes. Faith is taking God at His Word and directing your life accordingly. It's saying, okay, God spoke and here's what He says. I believe it. Now I'm going to line my life up with what God has said. I'm going to live according to God's Word because I believe God's Word. And true faith, saving faith, genuine faith, authentic authentic faith, faith that saves, uh, will uh, be demonstrated in actions. That's important. True faith will be demonstrated in actions. In other words, someone that's truly saved will not just talk the talk. They will... Walk the walk. I was surprised the first time I heard this uh, quote from Billy Graham. But Billy Graham said, he estimated that in the, the average church in America, taking, if you take all the denominations, all the churches, the average church in America, he estimated that there could be as many as 90% that are church members that are not truly born again. Just talking the talk. Trusting their church membership, trusting their baptism, trusting their confirmation class, trusting whatever, trusting in other things other than Jesus Christ. And only God knows how accurate that statistic is, but we do know that there are probably large numbers of people who, if you give them a survey and say, what religion do you line up with, they would mark Christian because they're not Muslim or they're not Hindu or they're not Buddhist or they're not atheist. They say, well, out of these options, I'm a Christian. And they would line themselves up with Christianity, but they've never really been born again. They're, they're talking the talk, not walking the walk. And true faith, someone that has true faith in Jesus, someone that's been born again, someone that's been truly saved, it's going to show up in their life. As a matter of fact, James says it like this over in James chapter 2. James says, faith without works is what? Dead. It's not real. If faith doesn't... Uh, demonstrate itself through doing something for Jesus, then it's not true faith. You can you can say you have faith all day long, but what do your actions point to? Do you really have faith? And so I love Abraham's story because Abraham demonstrates his faith. He's not just talking the talk, he's walking the walk. We see evidence of genuine faith in his life. And so let me just show you here in chapter 13, that's what chapter 13 is about, some ways that Abraham demonstrated the veracity, the reality, the authenticity of his faith. Uh, Genesis chapter 13. All that's introduction, okay? Deep breath. All right, you with me? 
Okay, let's look in Genesis 13 together. Four ways that Abraham demonstrated his faith. First, Abraham's faith was demonstrated by the way he handled his past. The way he handled his past. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, here's the question. Where was Lot journeying from? It says there he went up from Egypt. Now, if we go back to the end of chapter 12, we see what happened in Egypt, and it's not pretty. Did you know that sometimes people of faith stumble and fall? Did you know that? Anybody here as a Christian ever stumbled and fall? My wife said that. Yeah, your wife <laughs> Abraham, at the end of chapter 12, stumbled and fell. As a matter of fact, he goes into Egypt and his wife Sarah is a beautiful woman. And Abraham begins to say, you know what? They're going to see how pretty she is and they're going to, they're going to want her and they're going to want to get me out of the way so they're going to kill me. And so he said, here's my plan, Sarah. Let's tell everybody that you're my sister. Let's lie. And, and so she comes into Egypt and uh, Pharaoh Caesar says, boy, she's pretty. I want her in my household. And so he takes Sarah into his household. Look what it says in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abraham lied to preserve his life and, uh, and almost got into a lot of trouble with Pharaoh. Now again, God had told Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. That must mean Abraham has to be alive for that to happen, right? So for him to say, well, they're going to kill me when we get in Egypt is, is to not take God at His word. He faltered in his faith with God's promise. So he has a setback. He stumbles and falls in a moment of weakness, a moment of fear. By the way, fear is the opposite of faith, right? In a moment of fear. Another, by the way, did you know there are 365 times in the Bible we're told not to fear? <coughs> That's one for every day of the, of the year, isn't it? Do not fear. Fear is the opposite of faith. And he stumbled and he fell. And now he is returning uh, back to the Negev, to the area of Bethel. Why is he going back to Bethel? Well, look what it says uh, in chapter 13, verse 2. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had, here it is, made an altar at the first. So it goes back to the place where he was close to God. In chapter 12, we see that when he's in, in between Bethel and Ai, he builds an altar. He calls in the name of the Lord. He worships God. He's fellowshipping with God. His faith is strong. He's walking with God. And he's saying, I just blew it. I blew it here in Egypt. I want to go back to that place where I was close to God. I, it's like Abram saying, I want to reconnect with God. And it says, And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. you see what's happening here? Abram blew it. He stumbled and fell. And he wants to get right with God. He wants to deal in a right way with his past. I like what R. Kent Hughes writes. He writes, Abram left Egypt chastened and silent. His journey from Egypt to the Negev to Bethel was apparently a conscious pilgrimage through which he desired to recapture his previous walk with God because 
he ultimately returned to the altar where he first called on the name of the Lord. Now, here's what we learn from the way Abraham handles his setback in Egypt. A person of genuine faith always gets back up when they stumble and fall. A person of genuine faith always gets back up when they stumble and fall. Look what it says over in Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs 25. Turn your attention to a couple of key verses tonight. Proverbs 25. What it says in verse 16. 26.15. I'm sorry, that was the wrong verse reference. Um... No, it's not 2624. No, see here. Uh, hold on a second. 2416. Is it 2416? Yeah, 24. Thank you. 2416. For the righteous falls seven times and what? Rises, Rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. So there's this. There's this persevering characteristic in those that are righteous, those that are truly uh, saved. They get back up when they stumble and they fall. Turn over to uh, Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7 and make sure you fix Proverbs 25 on your notes. Make it Proverbs 24, 16. Micah chapter 7. Sorry about that. Micah chapter 7. Verse 8, Micah 7, verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. In other words, if I blow it, don't gloat, enemy, because God's a forgiving God. There's going to be a time I'll be right with him again. Don't gloat over me. I will rise again. And so we see here that the, the writer of Proverbs, Micah, has this, this trust in the mercy of God that even if there is a fall, a stumble, a setback, a, 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 a walking in sin, that God will be merciful and restore. And someone that has true faith will always get back up. Now, uh, a person of genuine faith, if you look there in your notes, not only will they get back up when they stumble and fall, they will always return to God after a spiritual setback. They will always return to God. They'll get back up and return to God. Get right with Him. That's one of the markers of, of true faith. Is how a person handles spiritual setback. I'll tell you a great example of this is David and Saul. The book of 1 Samuel uh, one we see fall uh, named King Saul, but he he just continued to spiral down and down and down and down. You remember when I preached through First Samuel probably two years ago, Saul just he just spiraled out of control. Uh, he fell, but he didn't return to God. David fell too, didn't he? Adultery, murder, deceit. Neglect in his household. I mean, you name it. David, David, David was a man of passion, but when his passions got out of control, he got into all types of trouble. But you know what David did? 
David repented. Psalm 51 is a prayer of repentance. He wanted to get right with God. David was a great sinner. He was a great repenter. He wanted to be right with God. And so, a person of genuine faith will always return to God after spiritual setbacks. So, here's the question for us to consider tonight. How do you do that? Abram left Egypt, went back to the place where the altar was. How do you deal with a spiritual failure? How do you get back up? Well, here are two things I want you to consider. And this is so important for for your spiritual walk. It's so important for you walking in closeness to Christ. Number one, leave your past behind through confession and repentance. Look in Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28, 13. I know I had this one right. Proverbs 28, 13. This is a very important verse. If you have a pen or highlighter, you may want to mark this in your Bible so you can recall it. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and... Everyone say and. And forsakes them will obtain mercy. So if you blow it and you want God's mercy... What do you do? You confess your sin and you forsake your sin. Both are important. It's not just confession, okay, I've blown it. It's I've confessed it and I don't want to do it anymore. Okay? I want to go in a new direction. That's called repentance. I want to make a U-turn in my life. I'm as I'm confessing this, I am I am bent that I'm going to, with God's help, leave this sin behind. Alright? Have you ever found yourself confessing a sin, and even as you're confessing it, you know in the back of your mind you're going to do it again. It's like, you're confessing like, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to do it again. That's not, that's not repentance. This is confession and forsaking. God, I want you to cha- I want you to give me victory and I don't want to do it anymore. Okay, I want to change. And so, very, very important. Now, turn to 1 John 1. I want to show you an important insight into confession of sin. 1 John 1, 9. Another very important verse. The Bible says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that word confess is an interesting word in the original language. This book called 1 John was originally written in... Uh, Koine Greek in the first century. And the Greek word there is homo legeo. Homo legeo, which is a compound word. The, the first part of that word homo means the same. Legeo means to say or to speak. If you put it together, it means to say the same thing about. So here's what he's saying. When you confess your sins, you are saying the same thing about your sin that God says. You're agreeing with him that your sin was wrong, that it was wicked. You're not making you're not making any excuses. You're saying, God, I blew it. This was high treason against the King of Heaven. I have sinned. I'm making no excuses. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to confess it. I want to forsake it. It's not just God, I did this. It's God, I did this, and it's serious business. That's what confession is. Homo legato. You're saying this. You're you're looking at your sin. From God's perspective. It's serious business. It's not just an oops. 
It's serious business and you want to deal with it and get right with God because sins like cancer, it, it, it takes root and it begins to just infiltrate and, and destroy. And so, leave your past behind through confession and repentance. When you fall, okay, when you sin, you need to practice confession and repentance. Confess it to God, say the same thing about it God would, and then ask God for the strength to make a U-turn and not do it anymore. That's what I mean by those two things. See, a lot of Christians are miserable because they don't understand this. They They never confess their sins. They're living in spiritual defeat, and they're miserable because they weren't designed to live in bondage to their sins. Christ died to set them free, right? And when people are in bondage to their sins, they're miserable. And they got all this junk in their life they've never confessed, they've never dealt with. And, and they can hide it from everybody else, but they're miserable because God knows it knows it's there and they know that it's theirs. You know, it's kinda like it's kinda like if you have company coming to your house and it's, it's going to be quick and your house isn't like it needs to be, you kind of get everything, you throw it to a closet, right? And, and people walk in and the house looks clean and put together, but you know there's a closet there that's full of a bunch of stuff that is very unorganized and uh, not, not, uh, not very attractive. And I believe that a lot of folks come to church and they, they try to... You know, put on a smiling face and look like they got it all together, but they got this closet in their heart that's full of a bunch of junk, and they need to deal with that junk. And you do it through confession and repentance. That's how you do it. And so, leave your past behind through confession and repentance. And let me just say this: if you're having um, having repeated issues. Uh, repeated problems with a certain issue, at that point it's probably good to bring in a brother or sister in Christ and talk to them about it and let them hold you accountable with that issue. So you can you have someone praying for you and holding you accountable to repent as you confess it. Now here's the next part of de- dealing with spiritual failure. Not only do you leave your past behind, Abraham got out of Egypt, right? He left his past behind, but you return to God through worship. Okay, after you confess your sin, after you forsake your sin, then it's time to just walk with Christ again. Enjoy renewed fellowship with Him. Now listen to me. If you are a believer in Christ, if you're truly saved, you will never lose your salvation. You are eternally secure in Christ. You'll never lose your relationship with God. He's your Father. He'll always be your Father. You're His child. You'll always be His child. That's a good place for naming. Right? You'll never lose your relationship. But sin does affect your fellowship. Your, your closeness with God. In other words, say I was with my dad when I was down in Florida this past week. And he's my dad. He's always going to be my dad. I'm his son. I'm always going to be his son. But let's just say that I um, you know, um, disrespected him. I'm still a son, but it would affect the fellowship, right? The closeness. And then I have to deal with that issue so that we could be back as a close father and son. That's what sin does in the life of the believer. It doesn't break your relationship with God, but it does affect your fellowship with God. And so you confess it, you forsake it, then you return to God and walk with Him. Back in Genesis 13, look what it says in verse 4. 
It says he went to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He begins to worship God and to walk with God and experience closeness with God once again. Return to God through worship. So after you deal with that sin, just enjoy the relationship with God. There's nothing hindering it anymore. So walk with Him. Read your Bible. Pray. Get involved in local church ministry. Uh, serve Him and enjoy the richness of a close, close fellowship with God. That's how you deal with spiritual failure. So Abraham's faith was demonstrated by the way he handled his past. Yes, chapter 12 tells us he stumbled, he fell, he blew it. But chapter 13 tells us he wanted to be right with God. Isn't that good? That's genuine faith. When a, when a righteous man falls, he gets back up again. Now here's the second thing uh, that we see in Abram's life that demonstrated his faith. Second thing is this. The way he handled his problems. The way he handled his problems. Look what it says in chapter 13, verse 4. He's there in the area between Bethel and Ai. And in verse 5 it says, And Lot, who's his nephew, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great, God's blessing, that they could not dwell together. Hey, really quick insight here. Did you know that sometimes God's blessing in your life can become a stumbling block in your life? You can begin to worship the blessing more than you worship the one that gave you the blessing. God's blessing can become an idol. Hey, remember when Egypt, uh, I'm sorry, Israel came out of Egypt? God delivered them uh, through the Red Sea. And you remember when they were leaving Egypt, God put on the hearts of the Egyptians to give them all their silver and gold? Remember that? You know what the Israelites did with the silver and gold at the foot of Mount Sinai? They made an idol out of it. God's blessings can become an idol. And they have here God's blessings, but it, 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 it's going to cause some issues here. Look what it says. There was strife, verse 7, between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So there's some tension here between Abram's great possessions and Lot's great possessions. Now, let me give you a principle that will really help you. It's here in your notes. Life brings strife. Just You better expect it. Some people are floored when they go through hard times in this life. We should never be surprised when we encounter difficulty. Life brings strife. You know why? We're not in heaven yet. We live in a sin-cursed world full of people with sin natures. And guess what? None of us in this room are perfect either, right? We oftentimes contribute to the problem. <laughs> so life brings strife. We live in a fallen world surrounded by sinners. But here's the deal. A person of genuine faith, real faith, someone who's truly been born again, deals with the problems and challenges of life with integrity. It's not a matter of whether you're going to go through difficulties, how you deal with the difficulty. A good indicator of the strength of your relationship with God is how you treat other people. We're going to see this in Abram's life, how he treated Lot during this time of strife. People of real faith are not mean, vindictive, spiteful, or controlled by wrath. Some of the meanest people out there in the world have their names on church membership rolls. Do you know that? That's true. Now, that's not here at Longview Point. We're at a great church, but I'm just telling you, 
just telling you that, and I, and I mean, I really mean that. But I, but there are people who who say that they're believers, but they are mean and spiteful and vengeful and hateful and controlled by anger. And people of genuine faith don't treat other people badly. They 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 treat other people right. That's how Abram treated Lot. So how did Abram treat? What did Abram do? Look what it says in verse eight. Then Abram said to Lot, "Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left." Abraham didn't have to give him the first choice. I mean, Abraham was the patriarch, right? <coughs> but he's being magnanimous here. And he says, Lot, you choose wherever you want to go. If you go over there, I'll go over here. If you go over there, I'll go over here. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Important note. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. And by the way, Lot chose poorly. We'll see why he chose poorly in subsequent chapters. But he chose to live over there by Sodom and Gomorrah, which got him into all types of trouble. But you see what Abraham does here? He wanted to maintain his relationship with Lot. He was a man of integrity. Others were important to him. And I believe the way he responds to Lot in a time of potential conflict and strife demonstrates the reality of his faith. People that that are truly saved, we all have our, our bad moments, you know, when we're tired or ornery or whatever. But people of genuine faith, because God's changing them, will treat other people with respect and love and dignity and kindness. It's one of the markers of, of, of the strength of your relationship with God. How do you treat other people? So here's a good principle for us to learn from Abraham. Do your part to be at peace with others and trust God with the outcome. Look in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. A verse you've heard before, but it bears repeating. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Let's back up to verse 17. Romans 12, verse 17. The Bible says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Trust God. Okay? For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay as the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the way Christians are supposed to act. As far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Now there are times when you do everything you can to be at peace with others and they're not going to reciprocate. Okay, But you can't help what other people do. You can only control your actions. As far as it depends upon you, be at peace with others and trust God with the outcome. If, if someone won't forgive or someone won't reconcile or someone's treating you ugly, even though you've been kind to them, God will handle all that. He'll handle it a lot better than you handle it, right? Uh, we get into trouble when we try to, try to take matters into our, our own hands. And so, do your part to be at peace with others and trust God with that. That's what Christians do. Being a Christian is more than 
being on a church membership roll. It's more than checking a box. It's, it, it shows up in your life. It's how you treat people, right? Your, your, your vertical relationship with God should greatly impact your horizontal relationship with others. And so we see Abraham's faith by the way he dealt with his problems. Let me give you a third thing very quickly. We see the, the evidence of Abraham's faith by the way he handled his possessions. His possessions. Verses 9 through 13, we've seen. Yeah, turn the air down. It's, it's warm in here. Verses 9 through 13, we see that, that he didn't mind giving Lot first choice. He just trusted God. Okay? If uh, God, uh, Lot can choose the best land if he wants to, I'll just go somewhere else. I trust you to provide for my needs. Now, if you look there in your notes, it's actually running. But oh, is it? Circulating good. Um, some people's possessions have a hold on them. Did you know that? Some people's possessions have a hold on them. Uh, again, God's blessings can become idols. And some people are so consumed with their stuff that it has a hold on them. It holds them back from faithfully serving God or fulfilling God's purpose for their life. Some people's possessions have a hold on them. And, and listen to this. Some people's desire for more has a hold on them. Some people have nothing, but they want something so much that that it has a hold on their life. They, all they think about is what they want to acquire, what they want to get, and how good life is going to be if they just get that thing they want or those things that they want or that raise that they want or that promotion that they want or that job that they want or that house that they want or the car that they, If they can just get that stuff, then they'll be happy, right? And that desire for more has a hold on people's lives. But do you notice Abram, Abram's rich? God's blessed him, but it doesn't seem like possessions rule his life. Lot, you choose wherever you want to go. Wherever you want to go, I trust God that he'll take care of me with my, with my life, with my holdings. Which reminds us of this principle. When you are content with God as your portion, the things of this world lose their grip. How many of you, just a quick poll, how many of you would like for the things of the world to have less of a hold on you? Raise your hand. If you would like to care less about money and less about material things, okay? Here's the way that you care less about the things that really are not eternal. You understand that if you have a relationship with God, if you have God, He's enough. That's the way you... you, you, you cause things of this world to lose their grip on your life. Let me show you this. Turn to Psalm 73. See, think I'm, don't think I'm making this up. Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a really interesting chapter. When you get a chance, read the entire thing. But in Psalm 73, the psalmist is looking around at society. And he's he's whining. And his whining goes something like this. God, I'm trying to serve you faithfully. I'm a righteous person. I'm, I'm doing what you call me to do. I'm trying to live in obedience to you. And I'm just barely getting by. And then I look over there at old so-and-so. And they are wicked. They could care less about the things of God. And look at them. They're living it up. Not a care of the world. They're acquiring things and living in luxury and comfort. And God, I just don't get it. 
I'm righteous. I'm barely getting by. I'm struggling. They're unrighteous and their life looks wonderful. And he's basically calling God into question. He's saying, God, this isn't fair. It's just not fair. Um, the other day, one of my sons, he, he, uh, he got into the habit of saying, that's not fair, that's not fair. And I finally got tired of it. I said, I said to him, I'll, I'll tell you which son, but I said to him, I said, you may tell you what's fair? What's fair is for God to fling us all into hell. That's what we deserve. That's what's fair. Everything else is just gravy. But then we and we got over that. Okay, all right. So, I mean, you know, it's, you need to be reminded sometimes that everything is grace. All right, everything is grace. Um, we should be glad we don't get what we deserve. All right. If we want, if we wanted fairness for God just to just to deal with us and our sin and His holiness, He would fling us into hell. But in His grace, He gives us salvation through His Son Jesus Christ. So, He just need to be reminded of that. So, um, but here in Psalm seventy three, the psalmist. Uh, is led to the right perspective. Look what happens in verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, the righteous are barely getting by, the unrighteous are living it up. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You know what he did? He went to church. Sometimes getting to church can put things in the right perspective quickly, right? He goes to the sanctuary, goes to worship, and he said, God, show me in my worship that I don't need to think about this life and possessions. I need to think about the end, the end game. And he's reminded, listen, if someone is unrighteous and someone's wicked and they're living it up, what does that matter? They're going to die and be separated from God for eternity. That's not something to envy, is it? But if I'm righteous and I serve God, then my end will be good. There's something for me to look forward to, even if this life is hard. And look what he says in verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. One day their fun's going to come to an end. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I, pricked, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, God. I didn't understand when I was calling your fairness into question. Nevertheless, look in verse 23, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is, oh, I love this, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It's almost like he's saying, hey, live it up. Live it up over there because that's all you have. One day you'll be destroyed. I don't have anything except God. And God is enough. That's what the psalmist is doing. He comes to the right perspective. I have God. He's my portion. The nearness of God is my good. We all need that perspective. I believe it's the perspective that Abraham had. He wasn't, he wasn't possessed by his possessions. He had the right perspective. He could trust God and knew that he had a relationship with God that wasn't enough. Turn to Lamentations very quickly. When's the last time you turned to Lamentations? It's right after the book of Jeremiah, by the way. Lamentations chapter 3. By the way, I'll give you a heads up so you can start learning to find it. After I finish this series on Revelation on Sunday mornings, I want to preach the book of Habakkuk. 
Habakkuk, minor prophet. So, figure out where it is. So, the first Sunday morning when I say turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk, you open right to it, people are like, wow. <laughs> what a Bible scholar. <laughs> and you'll smoke everybody else and make them look bad. All right? <laughs> Lamentations. Chapter 3. Now, in Lamentations, he's dealing here with sorrow because God had sent the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and, and to take many of the people of Israel, of Judah, into captivity. And he's lamenting here. He's, he's sorrowful uh, because of the destruction that God had sent. God had justly sent against them because they had turned their back on God. But look what he says in this moment of hopefulness in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. He says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Then he says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. You know what Jeremiah is saying there? He's saying we lost everything. The Babylonians have destroyed our city. They've destroyed our homes. They've taken us back to a pagan land. We have nothing. But we do have God. And as long as we have God, we have enough. I like what James Montgomery Boyce writes. He writes, When he, Abraham, had gone to Egypt, he had chosen for himself and had gotten into great difficulty. Now he was content to leave the choices with God and to trust God for his future provision. He did not need to take care of number one. God would do that. Therefore, since he was sure God would provide, he held the things of this world loosely. I love that sentence. Because he was sure God would provide, he held the things of this world loosely. If God gave them, that was all right. Abram would hold them in trust from God and use them for God's glory. But if God took them away, that was fine too. For Abram had God, watch this, and having him had the only thing that ultimately mattered. Isn't that good? If you have God, you have the only one that ultimately matters. And a relationship with him matters a lot more than anything, anything that this world has to offer. And the more you understand that, the more you understand that God is enough, the less the things of the world will have a grip on you. You'll just care less and less about the the stuff that this world has to offer. Uh, You may have heard me tell the story before, but when I was a student pastor going through seminary, I went with my pastor one day to make a visit of a man who had visited our church. And he had some um, 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 severe physical disabilities and he had a really hard time getting around. And he lived uh, in in downtown Memphis in, in some sort of um, housing project. Uh, and uh, Jimothy, you remember Jimothy? Uh, in a downtown project. And uh, you might have been with us. It might have been me and Murray was on staff with me there. Uh, we went to visit him. And uh, all I can tell you is the, the living conditions were just awful. You walk in this, this, this housing uh, project and it just smelled terrible. It was filthy. It was dirty. We went to this man's living quarters and, and he, he just had, I mean, just nothing. And uh, again, the apartment was filthy he could barely get around. Um, it, it was just a really, really sad uh, thing. And we were there and, and tried to minister to him and prayed for him and, and uh, had some time there. We were leaving. I'll never forget it. We were leaving, going back to the car. And 
the pastor, uh, his name was Jim, Jim said, he said, I just wonder, he said, if that was me, if I was living there, he said, I just wonder if Jesus would be enough. And that, of course, got me to thinking, I wonder if I lived in a place like that. I mean, just nothing, squalid conditions. I wonder if I lived there, I wonder if Jesus would be enough. Good question, isn't it? The more we understand that Jesus is enough, the less the things of this world have a hold on our life. And Abraham demonstrated that. One of the ways we know he's a man of genuine faith was the way he held possessions loosely. Let me give you a fourth thing and we'll be through. How do we see Abraham's faith demonstrated? The way he handled his past, the way he handled his problems, the way he handled his possessions, and then fourth and last, the way he handled his priorities. Look in Genesis 13. Genesis 13, verse 4. says he went to the place where he had made an altar at the first and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He goes to the altar to worship, to get right with God. Then look at the end of this chapter, verse 18. Verse 18. So Abram moved his tent after the whole conversation with Lot. Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there, what did he do? He built another altar to the Lord. This man was serious about worship. Every step of the way, you know what he does? He stops and builds a place to worship. Now this is before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai where God gave instructions as to how to build the tabernacle and the holy place and the holy of holies and the ark of the covenant, the table of showbread and the lampstand and all of those things which would be the centerpiece of worship for the nation of Israel. There was none of that. He was starting the nation. Okay, He was the father of the nation. There wasn't even a nation yet. And there was no church to go to. This was before the days of synagogues. I mean, there, there was no central place for him to go and worship. He just had this walk with the one true God. And so everywhere he goes, he wants to, he wants to construct a place to worship God. And that's a demonstration of his faith. Every step, uh, every stop that Abraham makes, we find him worshiping. Every stop, we find him worshiping. Don't you want to be like that? Every stage of life, you're just consistently a person of worship, a person of gratitude, a person that walks with God. And God is looking for people who are true worshipers. He's looking for people who are true worshipers. John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, listen to what He says to this woman at the well in Samaria. In verse 23, He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That verse tells me that God is looking for some true worshipers. He says in the next verse, God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So God is looking for people like Abraham. People that have genuine faith. People that walk with Him. People that live in gratitude people that at every stage of life are characterized by worship. He's looking for true worshipers. So here's my encouragement to you. Here's what we want to apply from Abraham's example. Learn to worship God corporately and individually. Learn to worship God corporately and individually. Did you know that what happens on Sunday morning here at Longview Point Baptist Church 
is a tremendous thing. A tremendous thing. We come to this really marvelous facility that God has blessed us with. And if I had time, I would tell you the story of how God gave us this facility and God has provided for us to be in a facility like this. It's a, it's a, it's a story of miracles. And it's, it's, just, it's just beautiful. And I tell you that because I've been all over the world, different continents, on mission trips, preaching in churches. I'm just telling you, what we have here is like the Taj Mahal compared to what most Christians worship in. I've preached in places with no roof. I've preached in places with cinder blocks with just a piece of wood laid on top of them as a place to sit. I've preached in places with wooden floor, I mean, dirt floors. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, if, if we could transport the, the, the believers from around the world here and they saw what we had, they'd be like, wow, wow. I mean, comfortable seats, air conditioned, I mean, you name it. So we had this beautiful ceiling. And and we get here and we 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 have enough money because of the faithful giving of God's people to pay the light bill. It's nice and good to have lights and air condition and and God's provided for us to have uh, a, a worship pastor that leads us week after week singing Christ-centered songs every week. We have people playing instruments, people singing the choir, and we get to get together. And sing these marvelous songs of worship to the one true God together. And I'm telling you, there's nothing to me. There's really nothing more exciting than that. I, I, I cannot. I'm not just saying this because I'm the pastor. I can't wait to get here on Sunday mornings. It's my absolute my favorite time of the week when all God's people get together and we worship and we're just we're we're focusing upon Him. Life is you know life is hard. It's been a busy week, a hard week, a difficult week, a challenging week, a, a distracted week. But now we're here. Now we can lay aside that stuff and turn our minds, attention, hearts, affection to God. And then then we get to get out our Bibles and just dig right. Just dig into God's Word. And in that moment of of studying God's Word, God is speaking to us. I mean, God is speaking to us. How the God of the universe is speaking to us. I mean, how incredible of a privilege is that? And we get to do that every week, and it is so easy to take what happens here corporately for granted and think it's no big deal. I'm telling you, it's a big deal. And we live in America, and we don't have to fear uh, the government yet knocking down our doors and coming in and and stopping worship. We have freedom of religion here. Now, if you've been following the Hobby Lobby decision, it's a huge decision for religious liberty. Huge decision. But it was only one vote from going the other direction. Just keep that in mind. And so we have freedom of, of religion here. Freedom to worship according to the way our conscience dictates. And what, what a privilege. What a privilege to live in a free land and worship Jesus and sing songs and study God's Word. I mean, wow. Do you, no, question. Abram had to build an altar everywhere he went. What if we could transport Abram, Abraham to 2014 and he got to see all this. Do you think he'd come to church? Think he would? Man, you better believe it. I don't have to build an altar. You got this big room and, and, and this guy leading songs and you have the completed canon of Scripture. I didn't have that when I was living. Now you have Genesis the Revelation. What's Revelation? Tell me more about that. I mean, he would, I mean, you could not keep him away from worshiping, right? You wouldn't have to beg him to come to church. And so I want you to understand what a privilege. 
corporate worship is. We just get to get together every week and 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 worship Him. Um, we need to learn to do that and 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 experience that privilege and understand that privilege. But we also need to learn to worship individually. Individually, uh, I believe that that what really fortifies our faith is to spend time with God every day, individually. Read your Bible, talk to Him in prayer, and as you do that, you're you are walking with God. Here's what happens. When you read your Bible, God talks to you. When you pray, you talk to God. Isn't that simple? That's all it is. God talks to you, you talk to God. If you read your Bible first, you talk to God about what He talked to you about. <laughs> right? So that's, that's a simple, that's, it's just that simple. And we need to do that every day to, to fortify our faith. And here's the deal. And oh, I wish I could get our folks to, 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 to get this. If you will worship God individually during the week, You'll be amazed at how different Sunday morning is. You'll be amazed. When you've been walking with God all week, Sunday morning is like icing on the cake. I mean, Sunday morning, man, you get here, it's like, wow, yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to get there because I've been worshiping all week. Now I get to get the other folks and worship God. I'm telling you, individual daily worship will transform your corporate weekly worship. So learn to worship God corporately and individually. Uh, to work, listen, all you need to worship is a Bible. That's all you need. A Bible. Spirit lives in you to help you to understand God's Word. A Bible. Talk to Him in prayer. That's all you need to worship. Learn to worship God corporately and individually. And then here's the, la- the last thing, and another step of application. Learn to see the day-in, day-out living of your life as an act of worship. Worship is not just a quiet time, or and it's not just... Sunday morning, but worship is to be a lifestyle. In other words, everything we do should be for the glory of God. Turn to Colossians 3. I'm going to show you this and we'll close down. I'll take some questions and we'll close down. Colossians 3, verse 17. Oh, I love Colossians. We just finished preaching through it on Sunday mornings. But look at Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, alright, you go to work, family time, Time with your kids, your spouse, grandkids, recreation time, vacation, whatever you do, all right? Mowing the grass, checking the mail, cooking dinner, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So we should do everything in a way that Jesus would be honored by the way we do it, by what we're doing and the way we do it. That's a a principle of lifestyle worship. Worship is gathering together on Sundays, and it's a great privilege. And worship is individual quiet times with God, reading your Bible and praying. But worship also is a day-in, day-out living of your life for God's glory. And when you begin to see Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday as worship changes the way everything it changes everything in your life the way you treat people the way you work on the job the the way you treat your family the, the way you uh, do recreation it changes everything if you're doing it for the for the glory of Christ if you're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus so learn to live a lifestyle of worship yes.